0: Hey, daters, are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds On Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome back to Reimagining Love. Before we kick off today's episode, I want to talk to you a little bit about an upcoming episode that I'm working on. It's about dating again. Are you thinking about re-entering the dating world after a breakup or a divorce or another kind of loss? What are the questions that you have? What are the concerns or the worries that are coming up for you? Or if you're someone who has recently navigated this transition, what advice might you want to offer to a fellow Reimagining Love listener? I am all ears. So bring me all of your questions and ideas via the link that we use to submit listener questions. You can find that link in the show notes or just email me directly at alexandra at dralexandrasolomon.com. That's D R dot com. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, so today we're going to get a little bit spicy with an expansive conversation about sex, and I'm really excited to introduce you to today's guest, Nicoletta Heidegger. Nicoletta is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a sexologist who practices in Los Angeles, California. She specializes in trauma-informed sex therapy and equine-assisted psychotherapy, which she practices from her unique ranch office in Los Angeles. Nicoletta also provides coaching, consulting, education, and retreats to folks all over the world. Her sex-positive approach aims to foster healthier sex, relationships, and lives for her clients. Nicoletta received her bachelor's in psychology from Stanford University, her master's in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University, and then her master's of education in human sexuality from Widener University. And when she's not seeing clients, Nicoletta is the host of Sluts and Scholars, a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast that I really must say has one of my favorite podcast titles ever. In our conversation today, Nicoletta encourages us to get curious about how everyone can learn to have better sex. And together, we explore big questions like, does having good sex matter? Is it true that Gen Z is having less sex? And what do horses have to do with sex therapy? Now, I know that last one has you intrigued. Nicoletta brings her inclusive biopsychosocial lens to all of these topics and to today's listener question, which is about a missing sexual spark in an otherwise caring and enriching relationship. All of us are part of our culture's shifting attitudes about sex, and shame free, sex positive conversations like this one are an essential part of that shift. I hope that you find as many moments for reflection and curiosity as I did in this conversation. Enjoy. Nicoletta, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: So happy to be here with you. I have followed your work for a long time and uh, it's an honor to get to chat with you. Oh, wonderful. Okay, before we dive
0: into all things sex and sexuality and intimacy, I would love to ask you the relational self-awareness question that we ask all of our Reimagining Love guests. Are you ready for it? Yes, please. Shoot. So what is a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you lately?
1: I think my growing edge in my relationship, but just in my life in general, has to do with FOMO. Um, In this culture, I think we're taught so much of like, there's a better option here, there's an upgrade here, there's that over there. And this sort of, you know, romantic comedy approach as well. And so I really have a hard time figuring out like what is sort of good enough in what's going on and how to kind of embrace that versus thinking of like, what's over here, what's over there, which is a little bit of my like ADHD, just sort of looking for for other things going on. And so while I myself am also non-monogamous, um, so I am able to sort of look and have multiple connections, there still is that you know, voice in the back of my head that says that there's some princess fantasy where there's one person who will meet all of my needs. And if I just look, they'll be out there. So trying not to get caught up in that, both in how I spend my day-to-day life and also in my relationship. Okay, well now you've got me super curious about the
0: intersection of non-monogamy and FOMO. That is fascinating. That you are right that you're <laughs> speaking. <laughs> I love that. So, we we would never say that you are non-monogamous because you have FOMO. We would not need to connect dots in that way, but it's really interesting that for you one of the ways in which non-monogamy perhaps serves you and serves how you orient To life in general is that it helps you kind of say, I don't have to do either or. I can continue to expand and try and reach and not worry about what I'm missing. Can you say more about
1: that? Yeah, exactly what you're saying. You know, it's not limiting in the sense that I'm, like I said, thinking that one person is going to meet all of the needs that I have. And so I am able to form connections, you know, with multiple people, with other folks. And, still important to put in the effort into what I'm doing and making sure that I'm not spreading myself too thin physically emotionally spiritually to ensure that I can really slow down and be present for myself and and my partner so
0: presence is an antidote to FOMO as well because I I I mean I struggle a lot I definitely (laughs) struggle with FOMO and thinking about, okay, what's everybody else doing or what should I be doing? And so you're, you're also naming that one of your antidotes or one of the ways that you work with your FOMO is presence to just be where you are
1: yeah and and really slowing down enough to actually listen to my body and and get a little more embodied to make sure that I'm I'm listening to what my body is needing and what I'm actually wanting to do versus what's coming from more of like a frenetic energy of missing out or I'm going to miss this experience or that party or this thing and really slowing down enough to listen to what my body is Capable of how much energy I actually have to give and being more intentional about where I want to put that energy because we're just constantly bombarded in life and on social media with like all the things happening everywhere. So it's easy to just get overwhelmed and overstimulated and inundated um, with all of that. But if I get quiet, slow down, minimize some of that exposure, I am able to see and recognize what I really want and listen to that sort of inner guiding voice. But sometimes I don't give myself the time to do that. And that's where I get into trouble.
0: Yeah, because that, that's not your yeah. default, at least not, at least not yet. But right, when you can remember, you know you are learning how to bring yourself back there. But it is a process of like losing it, coming back to it, losing it, coming back to it.
1: Yeah, because, you know, there's so much information coming from outside. It's not in a vacuum. If it was in a vacuum, and I was just at a silent meditation retreat for my whole life, certainly I could, I could follow this concept. But with all the information coming in, and all the options and people and, and just the challenge, I mean, you probably experienced this too, you know, we're, we're doing big things in, in our respective fields. And I think there's a lot of pressure to be the best, do the next best thing, do this, mm-hmm. post here, mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And how about this thing? Well, what about that? Oh, this person's doing that. Why am I not doing that? So that voice can get so loud, both in my relationships and just my life. Well, you read my
0: mind. That was the next thing I was going to say is I think part <laughs> of, it may, be, it may be a bi-directional relationship. It may be that part of what appeals to me about this kind of work is that I have FOMO. So I am naturally already looking around everywhere to see what everybody else is doing anyways. That's sort of how I orient. So then to have a career where a lot of it is kind of strategy, visioning, iterating, you know, creating that it goes that way. But then also I think because, I mean, there is a way that, right, that that part of this work is having a finger on the pulse of where the gaps are, what's needed, what's the next edge. And I think that for me, sits very close and has a complicated relationship with FOMO, right? And am I creating from a place of scarcity? Am I creating from a place of, you know, bounty and enoughness? I think that is definitely for anybody who's listening, who is entrepreneurial, you know, who's kind of trying to figure out their space and whatever matrix they exist in. I think that is a tension of how do you watch and observe what's happening in the field around you so that you know where to plant yourself and where to build. And how do you do that from a place of like enoughness versus like scramble and hustle and FOMO?
1: Yeah, and I I try to be um, kind to myself about it and for listeners out there, and and maybe you too who also struggle with this, there is so much that we're taught in this sort of like capitalistic trauma, right? That we're always supposed to keep going, that it's never enough. You know, we're always supposed to not celebrate what we do, look to the next thing, what's next, Mm -hmm. what's next. Mm -hmm. And so I think most of us are taught that it's not enough and we should keep seeking. And so we are sort of combating that ingrained messaging all the time. Right. Versus creating from a place
0: of rest and ease and uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like we're on the same page. (laughs) (laughs) Support group. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. So Nicoletta, tell us a little
0: bit about what drew you to your mission, which is helping people experience healthier and happier sex. How did you come to this work?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, was lucky enough that I had some good caregiving in that sense where my parents were pro-therapy growing up. I I went to a therapist starting when I was a young adolescent and that was really helpful for me. She was also someone who specialized in some sex and relationship work as well. And my parents were also pretty open and in a lot of ways and in talking about sex and relationships and really not coming from a place of controlling my sexual and relational development. I mean, there were certainly boundaries and things we discussed, but they really encouraged me to explore that. So out of most of my friends, I was usually the person who wasn't shy talking about this. And while there's been moments of shame, of course, because I live in a body and in this culture, I I experienced, I think, a lot less of it than some of my friends and colleagues growing up. And I just saw the impact that it was having um, on a lot of folks in in my space and really wanting to Help people overcome that and get to a place of experiencing more pleasure. My my mission is really believing and in a research informed way that pleasure and play are essential to our survival. They're you know a human right in a lot of ways and just essential for us being able to to live and survive. Not just something we get to have when we've accomplished all the things. And so in my personal and professional life, that's just become my my reason for being. Ah.
0: Okay. Well, so just a little pause here. Shout out to your parents. I suspect that I am much closer to your parents' age than I am to your age. And I think that your story is a story that I have heard so much with my my younger colleagues who are not Gen X like myself. I think that there's something about the way that people my age-ish have committed ourselves to raising the next generation without having to like, unload all of the stuff that we grew up with that I think is creating, like, I think the sexuality profession is just exploding. Like when I first started teaching graduate students at Northwestern in the early 2000s, I would maybe have one marriage and family therapy student who is maybe going to think about sex therapy. And now so many of them are going to go on to pursue specific specialized certification and training in sexuality. I think that's so encouraging. And so I love that your story began with the fact that you grew up in a household where your sexuality, your interest in relationship was not shamed. And so in that way, your work then emerged from lessons that you got very young, that you actually, this is not shameful. And- you know, you probably weren't told this part explicitly, but like you were like, it's so not shameful that I could actually build a career from this, and that's really like a credit to your parents and the you know sort of younger parents who are really committed to raising the next generation without shame.
1: Yeah, and I think the more I got into the the field in the space, the more I saw how much it was needed. Right, you're talking about marriage and family therapists. You know, we had one short class in grad school that barely covered enough, and so you know, I, I really. I wish there was more covered for mental health professionals and medical professionals. So where I turned when I was specializing in this starting in college and I ended up working at the Sexual Health Resource Center when I was at Stanford and writing a sex column and just the way people responded to what I was doing, I think just like further egged me on whether it was like with resistance where I'm like, okay, clearly this is important (laughs) um, or with, you know, feeling like they could talk to somebody for the first time about this stuff. So, so both options really kept me at it. And my mom likes to tell me the story of when I was younger and I had figured out self-pleasure as most young people do. And apparently one of my favorite options was the bedpost and the pole at the park. So I would be doing, <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Doing you know, your I thing. Just,
0: no. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. I'm like,
1: I'm like, I'm exercising. I had really ripped guns cause I would exercise for, for many hours. And so I just remember my, my, dad walked in one time with my mom and I was exercising. And my dad, you know, kind of looked at my mom and was like, what do we do? You know, like kind of like not knowing. He froze. Yeah. And and well, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. So I'm just going and my dad looks at my mom, you know, what should we do? And she's like, oh, it's okay. You know, she, she's almost done exercising. Just let, let her finish. <laughs>
0: Oh my Lord, let's just close the door, step <laughs> yeah, away. Yeah, exactly. So, the,
1: you know, just as a little anecdote of, of um, how that permission can be given early on to, to body exploration to the young people that you're caregiving for.
0: Absolutely. And that was not, your mom was not condoning or encouraging, but she was not shaming, right? She was just, she was accepting this was part of normative development.
1: Yeah, yeah, just kind of neutral. Yeah, what do you think helped her
0: be in that? place as she was raising you?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I actually did a podcast episode on my podcast, Sluts and Scholars, where myself and my old co-host interviewed our moms. <gasps> um, and so I think we we have some info in there, but, you know, she didn't really get a lot of that necessarily. So I think a lot of it was kind of wanting to maybe do things a little bit differently in certain ways. And so just sort of forming her, her own path. I love it.
0: You know, you just mentioned your podcast, which maybe has my favorite podcast title of all, Slots and Scholars. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Fantastic. Hard to advertise, but a good title. Oh, I bet. You are like 200 plus episodes in on your show. So I would be curious for you to speak a little bit about how your views on sexuality have evolved or expanded
1: since your launch of your show. You know, I'm constantly learning. That was one of the reasons I did the show is I really wanted to, well, first, I wanted to be able to reach an audience to have a voice that could reach people who maybe couldn't see me in my therapy private practice or to make it, you know, the message accessible for people who weren't in therapy, couldn't afford therapy or, or whatever. And Also, it was for selfish reasons as well, just for me to be able to uh, learn and have social connections and talk about things that I wanted to talk about with people that I think are interesting in this space that I want to share their work with other people. And so for me, I'm just constantly learning. And so I think it's just a reminder to um, stay curious and remember that I don't know, Everything I may never know everything about myself around sexuality, about a partner, and I'm constantly learning new things that I like, and, and it's just a, a great way to keep staying curious. I think I maybe always had that thought or that desire, but this has really just clarified that for me to, to keep a beginner's mind.
0: You are in your role as host of your show, you are modeling what you want your audience really to take away, which is that beginner's mind and that curiosity. So, the way you show up for your show is the way that you want your listeners to show up in their lives.
1: Yeah, exactly. In a curious, non judgmental way, and accepting that there are so many ways to have sex, really broadening our definition of sex. And so, yeah, I hope that that's something listeners will take away, but also just hoping that there's something there for for everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you. Dateable, Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Craftick and Ua Shu. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Why does good sex matter? I mean, I guess it doesn't matter for everybody. And that's part of, to me, being sex positive is that's okay. And I want (laughs) that to come from a place for folks of like making an informed choice. I think a lot of people get there because they think maybe there's no other option, right? Either they like, aren't sure why something's happening with their libido or it's just not working in their relationship or with themselves. And so they just accept it. Not a fan of that. I'm a fan of like, If you look and see what are the options out there, like, am I asexual? Does my desire look differently? Like, what's going on? You know what? Sex actually isn't that important to me. Great. I'm glad you know that about yourself. But as long as that comes from a, a place of informed intentionality, then to me, that's what matters. But I would say it's important to me because I sort of see it as my life force in a lot of ways. I think it It's my personal, it's my professional, it's what sort of drives me in creativity and motivation. It's a way that I've learned to really deepen my love and my relationship with myself. It's a way that as an adult, I get to play uh, and explore and be creative. For me, it's just so foundational to who we are as people, even if you're not having it or it's not a thing that you care about. I at least want it to be something that people know about and talk about so they can make informed choices because it is such a big part of our life and culture, even if you're not having it.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. The way that you are reminding us that opting out, you know, or taking a, taking a chapter or a season of pause around sexuality, that is exactly then what your journey is. But you are really diligent about wanting to make sure that people, that that experience of opting out of sexuality really feels like a choice rather than a reaction to shame or fear or difficulty or confusion.
1: Yeah. And just the general like sexual health is health aspect. But yeah, I I like what you said. I think there was a phrase I learned in undergrad in like a sociology class that was decide, don't slide. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but it was around like research about moving in with a partner. But it was like, don't slide into something because it's just there and it's easy. Decide. Decide, don't slide. It's Markman and Stanley. (laughs) I love that you know
0: that. Those are the the researchers. Howie Markman and (laughs) Scott Stanley were our researchers around yeah trajectories. In they do a ton of like premarital education. And that was what they're, you're right. They would say, decide, don't slide. Don't move in together because somebody's lease is up. Don't move in together because it's just more convenient. Really make that choice with intention. And so you're saying that that's an idea that can be brought to all aspects of our relational lives, including our sexuality decide don't slide
1: and I get that that may not be accessible for everyone you know socioeconomically and all those things yes but, you know on things you can control get all the information you can that's right that's right
0: in researching you we discovered that you are doing animal assisted psychotherapy will you talk to us about that part of your work of, of working on a ranch working with animals how does that intersection of of animals and therapy go together for you
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. So I do something called equine assisted psychotherapy. Um, I also do equine assisted learning, which is basically, you know, learning from animals more in the educational kind of coaching space. Um, But it's basically working with equines, which is horses, donkeys and the like, and having them be kind of a secondary therapist in the support space. You know, when a lot of people hear that I do sex therapy and equine therapy, they're sort of like, what? (laughs) <laughs> They're not really um, sure. Confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they get a little uh they get some kinky ideas um just about what that what that means, but it's not like that. Um basically it is a type of experiential therapy where people get to learn their behavioral patterns in real time with the support of a non-judgmental entity. And Horses are really cool for this because they are prey animals as we are predators. And so even though they're bigger than us and some people are afraid Uh. of them, the dynamic is different than people who do like therapy with dogs and things like that because it's a predator-prey relationship. And so the horses have to feel really safe with you. They have to really trust that your intentions are congruent with what you're saying, um, that what's going on on the inside is the same as on the outside. They're really great at just being present, slowing down, uh, taking care of their needs moment to moment. So, there's a lot of things that we can learn from just being with them that is therapeutic. Like, they're great at sort of co regulating, meaning helping our nervous system match with theirs to kind of slow us down. So, sometimes I work with them as just a resource and a tool for folks who are, you know, working through trauma, anxiety, depression. Other times I work with them to help people model things in relationships that they're working on, like boundaries, space, communication techniques, nonverbal and verbal. And then sometimes we work with them in doing sort of guided exercises and activities. So, two of my favorite that I do is there's a therapy approach called IFS internal family systems. And so, sometimes we'll work with the horses in either somebody creating a space where they're sort of showcasing different parts of themselves and then they're bringing in this non-judgmental creature to interact with those parts of themselves and then we kind of see what comes up. And so instead of us just talking about it hypothetically or theoretically, we're working through it in real time. Or other times we'll assign those parts to different horses that they uh, are working with that remind them of maybe a family member or that part of themselves. So we kind of can do some constellation work with that. Other times, just to show how it can work with sex and relationships. For example, if I have a couple that's struggling with their communication around sex and relationship. I will have them set up like an obstacle course and they'll each have a horse partner with them or potentially one horse partner. And then their goal is to get the horse through the obstacle course uh, without touching it, basically, Uh, like using energy, using intention. And what will happen is you will see the way that they interact outside of the therapy space. You Mm -hmm. will see what their strengths are. You will see who steps up. You will see who gets quiet. You will see who gets angry. You will see what they do when things are difficult. Um, And so we're able to work through those things in real time as opposed to just hypothetical. So it's great for for all kinds of things. And there is a big intersection with sex and relationships because we're talking about boundaries. We're talking about communication. We're talking about being able to be present. We're talking about slowing down we're talking about being sensual and not in a sexual way with the horses but sensual like paying attention to your senses and what's happening moment to moment so I've found it to be really cool and helpful for folks so early COVID I grew up riding horses and competing and so I knew there were overlaps and then I took some trainings and moved my office to a ranch good for you
0: good for you thank you I know that equine-assisted psychotherapy, it's not a brand new feel, but I, as you talk it through, I hear and I feel the convergences around all of the stuff that's coming forward around just yeah, embodiment and somatic therapy and understanding our nervous system so much more deeply. I can see how all those like streams kind of come together around equine-assisted psychotherapy.
1: Yes, I would definitely put it into the category of somatic therapy and also play therapy. So I mostly work with adults and a lot of kids do play therapy, you know, working with dolls and toys and sand trays. But like now we're working with life-size horse dolls of sorts, even though they have, they have their own persona, right? And their own desires and working in sort of a giant playground. So sometimes with clients, we just work on like playing mm. and having, having fun again and learning how to play again. A lot of us have forgotten. That's beautiful. So
0: one of the things I've been really interested in lately is about how Gen Z is reimagining, you know, sexual norms. This is the these are the college students that I teach and many of many of my therapy clients are parents of Gen Z. We know that the younger generations are having less sex than older generations. And even some data recently about wanting to have like less sexually charged content in media, more focus on platonic relationships and friendships in media. So some interesting kind of trends. We can never make sweeping statements about an entire generation. But how do you speak to or what do you notice in your practice around how emerging adults are coming into their sexuality perhaps differently than older generations have?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I have for a while sort of challenged the research you just mentioned about Gen Z having less sex potentially. And the reason I say that is I think a lot of times big news media outlets will like show the highlights of research yeah. and they don't often look at like, well, who's running this research? Like what were the limitations? What was the I mean, you, you know, some of this, right? Like what was the reliability? How do they ask about sex? how are they asking the question about sex? Exactly. Mm -hmm. How are they defining sex? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think potentially there might be less sex happening, but again, how are we defining it? And so what i see a lot for i think emerging adults is a potential more openness to like expand their definition i think i just see expansion i see a lot yes. of expansion and so i see expanding the definition of sex being more open to the definition of sex i see expanding the definitions of gender and the gender binary i see expansions of what they wear and how they you know present themselves i see a lot of that i think that's more of like maybe what i put into the category of like potentially positive things But then I also see, I think on the dark side of things is, you know, a lot of struggles with connection and relating to folks um, around loneliness, um, around body image issues that are happening because of like social media and just like all of the media output. And so I see a lot more comparison. I see a lot more people. We were talking about FOMO earlier. I see a lot more people comparing themselves to other people. Like, well, am I having enough sex? Am I doing it right? You know, what am I supposed to look like for this? Oh, well, there's that. And that mixed with not having comprehensive sex education is... I think, a, a dangerous a dangerous combination. So it's not necessarily just the fault of social media or porn or whatever. I think those can be scapegoats. It's like that we often don't give comprehensive sex ed to allow young people to look at things with a discerning lens, um, to make, again, those informed choices. So I, I see a lot of that as well as a, a struggle that people are facing. I also see A lot of stress and folks just kind of what I was describing earlier, you know, not maybe creating enough time to really connect with self in a lot of ways. And just again, doing that sort of comparison dance, which can really impact being present uh, in sex. And now what's positive is there are so many sex education outlets online and, and people yes. can get a lot of great information. But I also think as a young consumer, sometimes you don't know where to look. So it can be a little bit overwhelming or you may get information that isn't what you're looking for. So it's out there mm-hmm. and can be hard to sift through when you're already stressed. That's right. All of the observations that you are
0: highlighting very much fit with, with what I like see and feel and sense. Is that what the
1: parents are experiencing too?
0: Yeah. Yes, I think the parent. I think the parents who are who are able to kind of curiously engage and check in, right? I think sometimes. I think yeah. oftentimes, and this is probably we could probably go back multiple generations and see this. That oftentimes parents are sort of like rolling their eyes and shrugging their shoulders and saying, "I don't mm-hmm. understand my kid." So that's that's right. not new. But I yes. do think because there is so much like cracking and emergence that I think is so exciting and so complicated. I think there is like this generational divide can feel particularly. Intense, I think. I've been teaching undergrads, you know, that my undergraduate relationship and sexuality education class. We're now going to be the 24th year teaching it. So I, you know, basically have this like living, living generational laboratory. And the the way that my college students come in with a kind of language for themselves, a kind of understanding of themselves in nuanced ways, it's it is like leaps and bounds from where college students were 20 and 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I have wondered if perhaps. If this data is true, like that they are actually having less lived sexual experiences, if that is true, Mm. if we take that to be potentially true, could it be because that whole like dissection and exploration of who am I needs to happen before I know what do I want with you? Right. Like, how mm. do I know what to seek if my first order of business is figuring out where am I on the gender spectrum, on the sexuality spectrum? If there's a sort of sense like, I got to figure out my house before I invite yeah. you into my house, you know? And if that's the case, then it's a longer, it's a longer on ramp, but it is one that I think holds potential then for the experiences to be super intentional and conscious and aligned and full of lots of integrity. You know, I figured out my sexuality by and large by just doing stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that I had a whole lot of thought about what, you know, like that was my, it was the behavior that taught me about me. And I wonder if there's a way that the younger generation is maybe toggling back and forth, but doing a lot of self-work, you know, having therapists from an early age and, and having access, like you're saying. And so maybe there's, there's just more kind of marinating before experience, possibly. I'm curious what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that would make sense. I think it's it's so hard, though, to isolate the intersection of all these variables, right? Because I also see the impact, and this isn't new because this has been every generation, but the way the political and just the cultural climate is going to impact sex, right? In the 60s, 70s, maybe it was more free love and kind of against Vietnam War and things like that. And now we're seeing things around abortion rights, trans rights, you know, social justice issues, toppling systemic isms. And so I also see that impacting the way people are approaching their sex and their bodies. And so it is impacting sexuality. So when I think about sex, I always use a biopsychosocial framework, meaning we're looking at the the physical, the physiological, the biological, we're looking at the psychological, we're looking at the sociocultural, spiritual, um, and relational and community. And so all of these things are going to impact the way folks are showing up. So to me, it's this complex intersection, you know, of, of all of these things happening that I think we have to, to take a look at. And maybe it started as one thing, but then some of the other biopsychosocial factors might be continuing or, or mitigating it. So it's complex. It's layered. It's complex. It's layered. It's not well
0: captured in a headline. Right. You know, when you reverse Roe versus Wade, right? Like that has obviously obviously massive huge impacts not just on sexual behavior but just also just sense of self right like how do you feel whole and sovereign you know when when the political atmosphere is saying that you don't deserve autonomy and control of your own body
1: yeah yeah i mean it's uh it's also this interesting combination of like i said sort of the maybe negative comparison to all that's out there but then there's also Maybe positive community connection, at least in a digital space where people are like, "Oh, there's other people who experience this." so there's a uh, there's pros and cons to some of this um new age connections a hundred percent.
0: The last thing I'll say, and then I want to go on to our listener questions, you know this this research that I had just seen about emerging adults wanting less sexual content and more content and friendships. I love that. I love, you know, we have for a very long time centered intimate partnership as the top of the hierarchy of relationships. It is the relationship and everything else is Mm. secondary to it. And so I think one read of that data is that emerging adults are quote unquote prudish. I don't think that's the right read of the data. I think young adults are recognizing that they exist in a whole ecosystem, that yes, Mm -hmm. they may want intimate partnership, but they also want friendship. They also want family relationships. And so I think there's an interesting shift happening around what does community look like if intimate partnership isn't elevated above everything else. I know just years and years of being a couples therapist, I know that when I have a couple that is embedded in community, I feel yeah. like, oh, sweet. Okay. We're all like it's not just the couple and me trying to figure this out. They've got people around them cheering for them. Mm-hmm. They're connected. Their eggs are not all in one basket. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 You know, versus a couple maybe where there's not strong connections to community, those couples have a much harder time. So I I love if what the emerging adults are saying is yeah, we would love to explore love and intimate partnership, but we also really want to explore friendship and family and neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I've I've sort of seen that for some folks and not, this isn't what inspires everyone, but sort of being a direct challenge to, I guess, patriarchal systems in the sense that like a relationship or a partner, especially for, you know, the male, female, heterosexual model, isn't what defines your worth anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I see it as in sort of direct opposition to that of like, there are so many other things besides, did you find the right partner that can define a life worth living? Beautiful.
0: Okay. So let's move on to a listener question. Are you ready?
1: Yes. Got my therapy educator hat on. Put it on. Put your hat on. We've got a, a
0: really great question from Jen in Canada. She uses she, her pronouns. And Jen writes, I've been with my husband for two years. I love him deeply on so many levels, but the sexual desire just isn't there. I am four years sober and had a very promiscuous past. And to be honest, it was exciting and fun, albeit very unhealthy in many ways. He is my first ever sexual partner since getting sober. I'm not sure if it's my inhibitions slash self-consciousness, not feeling desired, or the fact that we have been trying to get pregnant for a year with no success. That is the issue. Probably a combination of it all. Regardless, I want to be intimate with him, but the spark just isn't there at all. I would so appreciate some guidance. Oh, yeah. All right, Nicoletta, I'm in, I'm in it with you, but where do you want to start with Jen's really rich, really thoughtful, tenderhearted question?
1: Thank you, Jen, for your question. I mean, first I want to normalize that this is probably the thing that I see most in my practice, right? As couples who are sort of naming this spark thing. And that's sort of where my answer first wants to go is like, how do we define spark? And kind of where did that narrative come from? Um, I think a lot of us, when we think of spark, we think of the new relationship energy that may happen at the beginning of a relationship or when the sex does have that aspect of maybe a little bit of um uncertainty and danger. Um, So it can be very exciting, but then it's also coupled with um, anxiety and that sort of like uh, a little bit of a high feeling, you know, and so it is certainly possible to establish and maintain connection long term, but it may not look like that sort of frenetic initial thing. All the things that Jen that you listed are certainly impactors that I think could be affecting things here, right? You said this is your first relationship since getting sober. um, And so it makes sense that you may need to start a little bit from the beginning of like, what does it take for me to establish intimacy? Some of my favorite things to explore here that I recommend to clients one is to, and this is from a colleague, Dr. Jess O'Reilly. She talks about your core erotic feelings. Um, this is basically what is the feeling or sensation you need to feel before you're open to connecting and pleasure, right? Do you need to feel safe? Do you need to feel excited? Do you need to feel challenged? Do you need to feel sexy? So looking into that a little bit. My second suggestion, I always refer people to Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, to help you figure out what your desire and arousal patterns are, because they may look different than what they were when you were single, when you were using, um, and when you weren't with this partner. So figuring out, you know, do you have, I'm guessing you've talked about this on your show before, but spontaneous versus responsive desire um, right. is one aspect. I think some people are waiting for this spontaneous spark to happen, but that may not be how your sober body shows up erotically. You may need a lot of things to get that engine warm. You may need to be reading erotica. You may need to be giving yourself more time. Next question I have is how is the sex that you're having? Most people don't want to have sex that isn't worth having. Uh, this is from a uh, uh, Peggy Kleinplatz, another researcher. So, you know, how do you feel about the sex you're having? Is it, is it the way you want to be having sex? What would sex worth having look like? Um, and then my final suggestion is to have you and your partner I don't love everything this company does, but the sex, love, and goop special on Netflix, specifically featuring Miss Jaya's erotic blueprints, was really helpful. So check out erotic blueprints. It's kind of like what is your love language, but sexually to see what your language is and what your partner's language is, because it could be that you're just trying to speak different languages um, and it's not happening. Lastly, always a big fan of the Esther Perel mating in captivity approach, which is sometimes the thing that we find sexy and exciting is not the thing that we're looking for to create safety in a long lasting relationship. So there is this dance of figuring out, hmm, have I chosen a partner because we're actually sexually compatible? Or have I chosen a partner for these other values? And now we're going to have to make a choice if we want to work hard at figuring out our sexual connection.
0: Great. Great. What a comprehensive response.
1: (laughs) That was was my therapy approach in five minutes. That was good. That
0: was good. You know, Jen really set us up well to take a biopsychosocial. You had mentioned that your lens around sexuality, as is mine, is biopsychosocial. And Jen is a natural biopsychosocial thinker, right? Because she's thinking about her sobriety. She's thinking about getting pregnant. She's thinking about kind of establishment of this relationship and trying to figure out what is it. And she's not ever going to have the pie chart that shows the exact percentages of what's at the heart of this. And it is the intersection of all of these different elements for her that is shifting. And so I think In that shift, I imagine there's a measure of grieving that she will need to do, you know, that there's grieving and and kind of opening up. Okay, so I'm grieving that chapter of my sexuality that was alcohol-fueled and kind of playing with all these edges and Mm -hmm. not fueled by safety, but fueled by, you know, danger. Excitement, yeah. Yeah, excitement, not knowing, and that that was a kind of excitement. And I don't know... yes. I imagine that as she practices her sobriety, she's had really wonderful tools and supports along the way, but I don't know what kind of guidance or care she's gotten around the intersection of her sobriety and her sexuality. And I I think that was part of what I really wanted us to drill down on because I don't know how much that gets talked about when somebody recovers um, in that way. Of really, and you said it beautifully. You said she needs to start from the beginning of like really getting to know. It's like a she has to get to know, and she gets to get to know who she is sexually when she's sober. She has opportunities to be in her body in ways she perhaps hasn't before. And for as promising as that is, it is also very likely pretty unsettling. Yeah. the just the sensory system alone, add in her thoughts, add in her emotions, all of that is different than the probably somewhat dissociated sexual experiences that she would have had that any of us have when we are sexual and using, you know? And so she really is like coming home to this body and maybe feeling somewhat disoriented at all of the inputs that are so different, than when she was using and an sexual.
1: Yeah. And the good news, Jen, is that you don't have to do this alone. You know, if yeah. it's if it's feasible for you, there are sex therapists, there are sex coaches, there are online programs, there are retreats to go to solo or together. Like there is a plethora of resources out there to not have to do this by yourself. And there is no shame in needing some support and accountability to learn this. Just like you learn to drive a car, you can learn to have better sex. And so don't assume it's just going to happen naturally because you love this person. There's going to have to be learning. So don't do it by yourself and get some support so you can you can get there. Great. Yeah.
0: I also want to speak a little bit to gen surfacing that she wonders a part of the loss of spark is around, um, getting pregnant, their journey to becoming pregnant. Oh yeah. How stressful that is. Yeah. I mean, she has been, she has spent a lifetime and her husband probably also has spent a lifetime having sex be the end unto itself. And now sex is a means to an end, right? Sex is the means of getting to this baby that's very much wanted and and being sought after. And so I would want her to, Oh yeah. To just be able to make some space for that. Just putting sex in a different Category in her mind, plus all of what comes up. You know, she used the word with no success, and so I'm I'm really feeling like I want her to have time and space to explore whatever feelings of quote unquote failure are coming up yes. for her, and what story she has about herself and accomplishment and perfectionism and giving herself maybe a hard time and therefore giving her body a hard time even though she's still I mean she's they're only a year into this journey and they are a year into this
1: journey. it's like both at
0: the very mm-hmm. same time
1: oh I'm so glad you said that that's so crucial because if people are feeling some kind of shame and judgment about the way their body is performing, quote unquote, or that's not doing what they want it to do getting pregnant, right It's going to be hard to maybe even, Love your body enough, maybe, to be open to receiving pleasure because you may not feel like it's worthy or deserving, or you're angry with it. So, totally so glad you highlighted that because having that relationship with yourself is going to be key. And that comes back to the core erotic themes here, too, is that. For me, the only kind of pressure I like in sex is if someone is like massaging my butt or spanking me. That's the only kind of pressure I like. <laughs> but to have it be pressured uh, in this way, right? that's not fun and pleasurable for most people. So, yeah, getting some support around that, so key. Yeah,
0: yeah. At the very least, being able to talk I want Jen to be able to talk to her husband about it because I don't want Jen's head to fill with stories about is he disappointed that it didn't happen this month? Or, you know, I can imagine a world where she's protecting him. He's protecting her. Maybe it's hard to talk about. I also want, I'm thinking about if they are part of a community where there are other couples who are also on a journey to become pregnant. And then she's got, you know, friends who are pregnant and she's not quite pregnant yet. Can she make space for both? The joy for her friend, and that like part of her that's like, oh, why her not me? You know that sort of jealous part. That then I, you know, is she judging that part that feels envious and petty? And can she just make space for all of those parts? You know, and that they all are they all warrant compassion.
1: Yes. Oh, thank you for saying that.
0: All of these concerns make sense, and um, I think she's got a lot of awareness about what's about what's going on, and that just like. Right, there are probably these pivotal times in our life where we need to bring in more resources and more support. And so, I'm so glad that you directed Jen to Emily Nagoski's work and Esther Perel's work and your podcast. Right, I think some, sometimes one of the biggest things that sparks desire is just listening to somebody talk about sex. Right. So, what are the ways that she is letting herself kind of indulge in a, you know, charged conversation? Like, I think that can also be something that can help her tap in as well. Yeah, to make it fun again. Mm -hmm. Right, you get to have fun even while you're making a baby.
1: Yeah. But both and. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, it will probably, I can't say what's going on for you medically, but it will probably help baby making happen sooner because when we're stressed, when our cortisol levels are high, we have research out there that shows how that can impact the ability to be able to get pregnant when you're in fight or flight, right? And so if you can have play and pleasure and have it be fun, that's better. It's a better option.
0: it's like we want to have the gen from down the road who has the baby we want that gen to whisper in this gen's ear and just be like listen the baby that's going to get made the moment it gets made is just exactly the baby you need like the exact month that those kids were conceived it's like that was the moment that these particular that particular egg and that particular sperm came together to create this human being like it's a freaking miracle that you can't understand now but down the road when Goddess is willing. You've got, you know, a baby. You'll be like, oh yeah, this is the baby that needed to get made, and the only time this baby could get made was that exact time that baby was made.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you are into the spiritual, um, a lot of my friends and colleagues really like the book Spirit Babies. Mm. It's it's a kind of mindfulness meditation and and spiritual that is sort of connecting you to the the soul, the spirit of the the baby you're supposed to have, kind of thing. So something to to explore bring in the woo yeah, to bring in a a little bit of woo (laughs)
0: nicoletta it has been wonderful to spend this time with you thank you so much for being with me
1: thank you so much for having me
0: for people who are just discovering you in this
1: conversation
0: where can people go tell us what you what you have going on and how people can learn more about all your work
1: Absolutely. So, if you are interested in therapy, I do work with folks uh, from California. That's because licensing things, you can only work with people in state. Uh, but I do coaching and education and consultation with folks around the world. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Therapy with Nicoletta. If you'd like to listen to the podcast, uh, which will hopefully feature Dr. Solomon at some point, um, Sluts and Scholars is my podcast uh, on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars. Uh, you can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Or- or at slutsandscholars.com. And I do retreats and other things. So feel free to subscribe to uh, my newsletter on my website. Last thing that is coming up in February is I'm going to be actually doing a live podcast event around maintaining great sex over time. It's called Afternoon Delight. It's happening February 10th in Los Angeles, but we will probably also have some online virtual options as well. So if you're wanting to come to LA, it's with myself, uh, Dr. Tara from Love Bites, uh, Dr. Nazanin Moali from Sexology Podcast, and August McLaughlin from Girl Boner Radio. And we've got, we're therapists, researchers, you know, uh, colleagues, educators, and yeah, we're featuring this event on some of our top learnings of maintaining great connection over time. So come check it out. would love to see some of you there.
0: That's quite a lineup. I know three out of the four of you, and I think so well yeah. of August's work and Dr. Morale's work. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's great.
1: Yes. Come visit.
0: <laughs> Good. I would love
1: it. Well, thank you, Nicoletta. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Nicoletta, for joining me here on Reimagining Love. You can find links to Nicoletta's work, the Sluts and Scholars podcast, and the upcoming Afternoon Delight live podcast event in this episode's show notes. I also want to express my deepest gratitude to Jen for writing in with such an interesting, rich, and complex question. I'm wishing you all the best in your journey. Until next time, be well. Reimagining Love is produced and edited by Emily Reeves. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, You can find me on Instagram at alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.